It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the last of three episodes based on our interview with Columbus, Georgia-born artist Bo Bartlett. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. You are in Swift Mill. That's where your studios are, you and your wife, mm-hmm. uh, Betsy Eby. I'm sure that there were other reasons why you chose to put your studios in, in that place. I mean, it's the space is great. The light is great. But was it the history also partly that was influencing you or does influence you now as you work there? Well, I remember as a kid, you know, going by these mills and the windows. Remember the, uh, the screen that uh, was like these large metal screens that covered the windows and the fans would blow the cotton into those screens and by the end of each day it would just be like a cotton scrim over the window a white cotton scrim and i I remember that and then you know they would blow them off or get it off and then you know the next day it would sort of start all over again and you remember i mean those what those working conditions must have been inside where you're breathing all that stuff yeah but but i mean the the bib city and um the Boogaville, which is between the Swift Mill downtown and and my house in Midtown, they were all mill mill houses and mill and and I love those areas. I mean, I, I've always loved both Boogaville and Bibb City, the, the, just the the shotgun houses and the you know their wood structures, just function you know functional structures, and and uh, hopefully in time they will all be um, appreciated and all restored again. But I think that for the the building that I'm in, it was the fact that someone had the foresight to to turn it into large loft spaces with these i mean we have three north window studios here where we where we paint and i mean you can't get space like this i haven't seen it anywhere in america actually my friends come down from new york and can't believe the spaces and it's relatively affordable you know it's amazing to be able to be here and, and to have this history here and and somebody smudged this place good time i mean i i think that when whoever I think Pace was the was the guy who bought this this and fixed it back up, but he must have done some serious smudging because there's I've had many people in here. There's there's no negative energy in these spaces. You know mm. there must have been some negative vibes <laughs> at the time when all these mill workers. But it, this place has been cleared completely cleared, and it, it's it's a fresh and energetic place to to work and create. Tell us about uh, things don't don't stay fixed, and I'm I'm particularly interested in the ways in which uh, Tennessee Williams and Carson McCullers inspired that film. Yeah, so things don't stay fixed um, is it's a Southern Gothic drama, and set in Columbus, and it was always set in Columbus, and all of the events in it are versions of stories that happened to me or events that happened to me growing up. I had the idea when I was in uh, art school. I started having dreams that my paintings were moving, and I. Just thought, wouldn't that be cool if, if you could have moving pictures? And then you know, slowly it dawned on me there was such a thing already, motion pictures, <laughs> movies. And I so I, I took the step to go to film school after art school. And in 96, got a certificate in filmmaking from NYU. And I, when, I, when I was at NYU, I asked my screenwriting teacher, you know, she said every screenplay, every great film starts with a great screenplay. I asked her if she would help me write the screenplay. And I don't know how many students after that every every semester, but she, she said, well, let's have lunch. And we had lunch. And I told her my story that I wanted to do. And she said, you know, it's not right for me because I'm, I'm a New Yorker. You need a Southern writer. And she said, um, but I just saw an incredible play on, on uh, Broadway. It was called So Long on Lonely Street. And it was written by uh, Atlanta playwright Sandra Deer. 
she said uh, it got a really bad review. It got bad reviews in the press. And so she's, it, they had to close it. They had to sh shutter the play. And so she said she's gone back to Georgia and it's probably down there licking her wounds right now. So you might want to look her up. So that's exactly what I did. I finished film school and got shot down to Atlanta and found her. She was working at the Alliance Theater as the uh, artistic director, managing artistic director and literary director. And then I um, asked, asked her if she'd be interested. And I told her the story line and she said yes. And when we hit it off, we were like best friends. The answer had been someone who had, um, she had actually studied with Tennessee Williams. She was friends with him. And that was, you know, her mentor. But we worked for five years writing it together. She, you know, I would come with an image. I'd say, I want to see somebody out in the field with a, a cleat light, you know, like a spotlight. And just in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. And she would, you know, next week she would write it up and she'd send it back to me. And when we first started, she was writing on a typewriter and, you know, that's how long ago it was. We didn't have internet or anything. She'd mail pages to me and or read the, the scene to me. And it took a long time to, to write it. But we finally got finished and we optioned, optioned it in Hollywood for two years and for four years, two rounds. And uh, it came back to me. And by then I was working on another film, Snow Hill, the film about Andrew Wyatt. By the time I finished that, which was a five or six year project, I, all I wanted to do was paint because Andrew Wyatt had inspired me again to just want to paint. So I sat on the screenplay and Sandra and I, Sandra actually moved to Philadelphia and we wrote another screenplay called The Thing of Beauty, which we have, but that was a Pennsylvania screenplay. When it came time, we moved back to Georgia and the film industry was here. Betsy and I were like, you know, I wanted to make a film and, I, and she was like, well, make that first film because you talk about things don't stay fixed all the time. You know, you, you, you quote lines from it. Nobody knows these lines but you. So you need to get that thing out. So, you know, you can at least like, you can live in the real world and not just in your head. She encouraged me to do it. And, and Betsy actually helped finance it. She was the executive producer and did all the music on it. So it was, it was a, a wonderful collaboration, but it was all um, Sandra's original screenplay, which led to the vibe of the film, even though it got probably more serious than it was. Not that it wasn't serious and it's finished state as a screenplay but it was probably had more humor it was funnier and that was you know, represented Sandra's personality and her lineage of, of writing but I brought a kind of more a, a sort of a moody darker edge to it coming out of you know David Lynch was a student at Pennsylvania Academy and went into film and, and M. Night Shyamalan was a friend from Pennsylvania so you know these influences were in there for me and I always loved Tarkovsky, the Russian uh, filmmaker. So, those, you know, my film sort of slid more in that direction, even though we filmed every line from the screenplay. We filmed it all. It's just all that's on the cutting room floor. Well, it's a gorgeous film. It is Thank so you. beautiful to look at. And for our listeners around the world, Bo, we have we have listeners in some 45 countries for this podcast. Fantastic. And, you know, people who are interested in the work of Carson McCullers, and I know a lot of them out there who are uh, absolutely devoted fans of Carson McCullers because they've come to Columbus to stand in that house, right, mm -hmm. where Carson grew up. And I would like them to know that your film, I think, first of all, the, the main setting, the house, is in the same neighborhood. And there's so many uh, scenes in the film that are in this very small area, like the cemetery, for That's instance, right. and other places like that, and just gorgeously photographed. So for people who are interested in the place where Carson McCullers grew up and to see what it looks like and to see it in, in this sort of beautiful way, I'd highly recommend Things Don't Stay Fixed. And as you said, it's available everywhere. I saw it. It's you can you can watch it on YouTube. I mean, you can rent or right. buy it to to watch it on YouTube, so folks yeah, can see right. that and know that that all of those gorgeous images 
are of Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, it's a love song to Columbus. It really is. The other day, someone was saying that it reminded them of what Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil did for Savannah, that they they felt like the things that they fixed did for Columbus. It's true. It's true. I hadn't thought of that, but that's exactly true. What do you think? We were talking about how when you were growing up, Carson McCullers was not really talked about. She died when you were 11. What would you say is her legacy in Columbus now? I think that what you're, what you've done and what you're doing, uh, you know, really helps uh, being a proponent to that literary heritage and what Kathy and Fred have done and everyone has done with the Carson McCullough's house, as well as, you know, and, and Nyack, obviously. I think, you know, having two houses does sort of, maybe it confuses people sometimes because, you know, there's a Southern version and a, a Northern version, this being the, the childhood home. But I think that the the legacy through what CSU has done and what all of you have done to help continue to educate. It's a great gift just to Columbus to honor where she's from, as well as nationally and internationally. What's great, I think, is when people visit here to see, and that's one of the things that we've wanted to try to do with the Bill Bartlett Center, is to, is, is to encourage people to come visit here, because then you really have a deeper understanding of, and, and that's true for any literary work or it's like if you go to Vienna suddenly you understand the you know the music of you know Strauss or those guys you know uh, you know um, it's like that any anywhere you know you go to Philadelphia and you suddenly understand Thomas Aikens more than you did before or the Brandywine Valley and you understand Chad's Ford and, and Andrew Wyeth you know because you've been to that place and suddenly it, 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 it it's a living thing I remember going to Jerusalem one time when I was in in school and back in the 80s and it's like, oh my God, you know, like Jesus walked on the street, you know, like he was a real person, you know, like, yeah. you know, it's not a myth, you know, that there was an actual person and they have, you know, it's like in Philadelphia where, you know, they have the Ben Franklin, a version of where the Ben Franklin house was and the Betsy Ross house, you know, when history mm-hmm. becomes real. And that's what it's, you know, the, the, when you travel and you come somewhere like Columbus, which is small, I call it a sleepy town, you know, it's a small place. And then you 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 see the culture um, and you see the actual Carson McCullough's house and you see the mills where, where she was writing about and, the, and Broadway. And I constantly, so like um, a ballad of the sad cafe, you know, like I, I try to like think about where, where is that exactly? Because, you know, in her mind, it's somewhere exactly, you know, it's somewhere in a historic right. district or something, yeah. um, you know, and, and so when you, I walk the historic district every afternoon, Betsy and I take a walk along the river and walk back through, you know, go down to the stadiums and walk back up through the historic district. And, and I think about Ballad Sad Cafe almost every day. When you go to a place, it, it, it brings that history to life. So I think that it, it's it's here, it's in the air, it's in the water. Her legacy is, is alive and well. And a visit just, you know, celebrates that when you actually are breathing the same air and seeing yeah. the same sights. When you were talking about that, it reminded uh, me of when Susan and I were in Rockland, Maine, and we went to the Olson house Mm -hmm. and of course that's where Andrew Wyeth is buried right there that field in front of the house looks exactly like it does in the painting Mm -hmm. and Susan said this is really eerie this is surreal it's like we're in the painting you know and I said it is true it's I I I don't think I quite expected it to be quite like this you know and 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 like I said it does make it alive in a way that it wasn't even all the times I had looked at that painting, you know, to yeah, be at that it's, place. It's such an important thing about culture and about the creative act, because, I mean, he raised that thing up. He raised that house up to, to be its art, but it's, it's, it's history. It's history of Maine. But if, if he hadn't painted that house and those people, that would just be some derelict old Maine house. I mean, it probably would be falling down right now. The glory of it would be gone. The history of it would be gone. But because he 
saw it and tried to get it down and record it with his root feeding his crown. I mean, his he he was from Chad's Ford, but he lived in Maine every summer. Mm-hmm. And his father took him there from a young age. And so, you know, he was he was imbuing something with all of its past and getting that into the paint so that he was holding history. I mean, that's what great art does. It, it, it brings everything up to this crystalline moment and gets it into a form, whether that's music or writing or painting or whatever, or film. And so he, he holds that. And, and then so people go there, you know, they, they go there to experience that house. And if it weren't for him painting it, they, they wouldn't, you know, and they wouldn't even pass it or even think about it. There are a trillion houses. We just pass them all the time and don't even look at them or think about their history. And so there are a trillion houses or places and moments for us all to tap into and help honor yeah. by our creative act and it's an obligation and we should we should be doing it it's funny because again uh, you t- when you're talking it made me think of the smith mckellar's house when i have given tours of that house to people from around the country and around the world and what carson mckellar's did just like you were saying uh, you know for that house because it has been my experience on a number of occasions to be giving a house tour of the house and it's usually when we go into the bedroom and i say this was carson's bedroom when she was growing up mm-hmm. And they just start weeping. And they said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, no, no, it's okay. And they're like, you you just don't know how overwhelming it is to be standing in this place. And I mean, it's just a room in a house, right? But I get it, you know, I get what she did to that place and the connection she made with them and how that place for us somehow embodies it you know that mm-hmm. that experience it's a sacred it's a sacred thing it really is and i mean i think that our artists writers musicians i mean joseph campbell said that the artists are the prophets you know and i i don't take that lightly i think that you know we we have to live up to our calling and it's an obligation to bring uh, honor to our ideas and endeavors and and place and all of the energy of life that's flowing through us and around us and the history and it's, it's our obligation. And when you do that, when you do uh, honor it in that way, it becomes a sacred thing. Mm-hmm. And people get it. And people um, continue to honor it and, and live in it. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a, a process of creativity, which uh, is, is borders on um, you know, religious experience. Bo, I really appreciate your taking your time out. I know how busy you are. I see that beautiful painting uh, behind you, Thank and you. I can't wait to see it in the flesh. So I'll maybe get a chance. Yeah, that's great. Our listeners cannot see it, but it's <laughs> it's amazing. And uh, another uh, great work by Bo Bartlett. So uh, thanks. Thank, thanks. thanks so much, Bo. Uh, good luck on the show, and uh, I hope to see you again real soon. Thanks, thanks, Nick. Thanks for doing everything you do, and thanks for your wonderful writing and your poetry, and uh, just so grateful to all you do. Well, thanks so much, Bo. These are some selections of the Battle of the Side Cafe. The town itself is dreary. Not much is there except the cotton mill. The two-room houses where the workers live. A few peach trees. A church with two colored windows. And a miserable main street only a hundred yards long. On Saturdays, the tenants from the nearby farms come in for a day of talk and trade. Otherwise, the town is lonesome and sad. 
like a place that is estranged from all other places in the world. The nearest train stop is Society City, and the Greyhound and White bus lines use the Fox Falls Road, which is a few miles away. The winters are raw and sharp, the summers white with glare and fiery hot. If you walk down the main street on an August afternoon, there is nothing to do. The largest building in the center of the town is boarded up completely and leans so far to the right that it is bound to collapse at any moment. This house is very old. There is about it a cracked, curious look that is puzzling until you realize that at one time and long ago, the right side of the front porch had been painted and the painting was left unfinished so that one portion of the house is dingier and darker than the other. The building looks completely deserted. However, on the second floor, there is a window that is not boarded. Sometimes in the late afternoons, when the heat is at its worst, a hand will open the shutter, and a face will look down to the town. It is a face like the terrible dim faces known in dreams, sexless and white, and two great crossed eyes, which turn inward so sharply that they seem to be exchanging with each other one long and secret gaze of grief. The face lingers at the window, for an hour or so. Then the shutters close once more, and there is not likely to be a soul on the main street. These August afternoons, when the shift is finished, there is absolutely nothing to be done. You might as well walk down to the Fox Falls Highway and listen to the chain gang. However, in this very town, there was once a cafe, and this old boarded up house was unlike any other place for many miles around. There were tables with cloths and napkins, colored streamers from electric fans, and gatherings on Saturday nights. The owner of this place was Miss Amelia Evans, but the person who was most responsible for the success and gaiety of the place was a hunchback called Cousin Lima. One other person had a part of the story of the cafe he was the former husband of Miss Amelia, a terrible character who returned to the town after a long time in the penitentiary, caused ruin, and then went on his way again. The cafe has long since been closed, but is still remembered. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day.
The recording you heard is from the 1958 MGM Records album Carson McCullers Reads from The Member of the Wedding and Other Works.